Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today is going to be a little bit of a different twist. Normally, for these podcasts, I interview a guest and we talk about a topic of interest related to women and children's health. But today, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and sort of do a reproduction of a lecture that I did called The Growing Brain in two conferences this year in New York and also in Orlando, Florida. So what we're going to talk about primarily is what's happening in the growing brain of a child while the child is inside mom and what's going on, the upstream risks, the reasoning behind potentially why we are developing diseases of the brain, including autism spectrum disorder. So we're going to do a semi-deep dive here to try and really gain an understanding of what's happening in modern society. So here goes. When we look at the brain, I think of it primarily now with all the growing data that we're talking about two things primarily, immune solvency. So what is going on in the immune system? Is it where it needs to be as far as being tolerant of the world and safe for the human? And the second one being inflammation. Inflammation is the new buzzword in medicine. And it is a buzzword primarily because legitimately there's a big problem in society with excesses of inflammation in the body leading to disease. So when we think about the prototypical neurologic concern of modernity, we are talking about autism spectrum disorder. Incidents when I was born in 1970 was roughly one in 5,000 up to one in 10,000, depending on the study you read. That has changed dramatically. If you look at the data from the CDC and also from California and New York and places where they keep good records, it looks like we are on an exponential rise with roughly anywhere between one in 38 now by the CDC data and some studies showing actually up to one in, in the 20s in states like California. We're talking about 125 plus X change in a disease in the United States without a change in genes, i.e., the genomic code that leads to the development of a child in utero has not changed. The genes are identical as they have been, but we have now more disease. So that posits that something else is going on. What are the possible etiologies? What are the antecedents? What are the upstream risk factors that could give us a better understanding to a disease process? So let's look at a Duke study from Duke University that was published this year in JAMA Network Open. It was performed by Dr. Matthew Engelhard, E-N-G-E-L-H-A-R-D, for those who want to look up the study. It was called Predictive Value of Early Autism Detection Models Based on Electronic Health Record Data Collected Before One Year of Age. And in the article itself, as written, they state detection of autism early in childhood is critical to ensure that autistic children and their families have access to appropriate supportive resources. In particular, early detection is a necessary step toward early behavioral support, which has been associated with improved outcomes. To improve rates of early detection, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended universal screening at age 18 to 24 months and a recent Lancet Commission on the Future of Care and clinical research in autism reaffirmed the importance of prompt access to supportive services to help autistic children develop and succeed. However, results from the U.S. Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network showed that in 2018, the median age of first diagnosis was 50 months, which is just north of four years, implying that most autistic children are still identified too late to fully benefit from support. 
The most commonly used early autism screening tools are the modified checklist for autism in toddlers with follow-up called MCHAT-F and the revised version MCHAT-RF which are valid from age 16 to 30 months. Recent analysis in a large pediatric network found that MCHAT has a detection rate of autism with a 39% sensitivity and a 15% positive predictive value. Another early screening measure, the Social Attention and Communication Surveillance Revised, outperformed the MCHAT-F, reaching 62% sensitivity and an 83% positive predictive value between the ages of one and two years. A third measure, the parents' observations of social interaction showed 83% sensitivity and 75% specificity in a combined primary care and specialty sample of 232 children. While these measures are essential tools supporting early detection, there is still a need to develop new approaches and use additional resources of information to boost the accuracy and reliability. Furthermore, alter alternative approaches may be better suited to mitigate subjectivity and biases in existing measures. For example, the MCHAT-F performs worse among girls, racial and ethnic minority children, and children with low-income households. These biases may contribute to disparities in diagnosis, such as delays in the diagnosis observed in girls and the delays in lower rates observed in racial and ethnic minorities. And this is a big deal, folks. Continuing on. Finally, the aforementioned measures are recommended at age 16 to 30 months, but earlier suspicion may improve oversight and facilitate even more timely support. So it goes on and they state, passive monitoring of the electronic health record data is a promising alternative approach to early detection. A variety of known early correlates of autism are documented in the EHR, electronic health record, including low birth weight, preterm birth, low APGAR scores, and other perinatal complications. Early autism-related conditions such as postnatal hyperbilirubinemia, respiratory infections are also documented using diagnosis codes. In addition, problems with crying, sleeping, and feeding, which are associated with later autism diagnosis, may be documented in clinical notes or reflected in high rates of visits to specific health services. Any of these findings has limited predictive value in isolation, but collectively, the EHR data may be adequate to detect autism effectively from a very early age. So what they did then was go back in time and look at the electronic health record from January of 26 to December of 2020. And over that time period, they looked at 45,080 children. And they found that 1.5% or roughly 924 of those children met autism criteria and they were included in the study. They found that model-based autism detection at 30 days, mind you, 30 days of age, achieved a 45.5% sensitivity and a 90% specificity. So for those who don't remember what the statistical analysis piece of this information is, specificity means if you find it, is it real? So at 90%, that's pretty darn good. And sensitivity means if you look for it, are you finding it? And they found that in one in two cases, they could. Then by three years of age or 360 days, or excuse me, at one year of age or 360 days, they achieved a 60% sensitivity and a 94.3% specificity. So that really says, hmm, this is pretty interesting. And so when I think of that in the context of the autism spectrum story, this tells me that this data point is likely to mean that we are dealing with a disorder that is antenatal or at least perinatal. 
but probably antenatal, which means before the child is born and not a vaccine related phenomenon or other autism spectrum hypotheses out there. Now, again, this is not causative yet. This is correlative. This is data that points us in a direction, but we're not sitting here saying this is 100% slam dunk, but it's really interesting and really important. And as we go on in this discussion, we're going to see where there is actually some smoke around the antenatal period of time that could lead to the fire of what we're seeing antenatally for autism spectrum disorder. What about nutrients? Is it a deficiency issue in mom or child? Is it a suboptimization of nutrients needed, macro and micronutrients, otherwise known as cofactors? What is the story here? And there is data here that we're going to talk about. And then what about if it's an infection-related phenomenon? So there's an article in JAMA Network Open again by Dr. Edlow, E-D-L-O-W, called Neurodevelopmental Outcomes Among Offspring of Mothers with SARS-CoV-2 Infection During Pregnancy, published this year. And they found that mothers who had SARS-CoV-2 positivity, there was a statistically significant elevation in the risk for neurodevelopmental diagnosis at 12 months of age in male offspring with an odds ratio of almost two. So that's pretty significant. And we'll have to figure out why are some kids having issues because the mother's getting infected and others aren't. And then what about Ramirez Celis's work in the journal Molecular Psychiatry in 2021? entitled A Maternal Autoantibody Profiles as Biomarkers for ASD and ASD with Co-Occurring Intellectual Disability. And they state basically here that is it possible that there's autoantibodies produced in mom attacking child? And if we get upstream of those antibodies, could we then potentially reduce this risk? And they found that what was the possible mechanism here, right? Is there a possible mechanism based on those antibodies? Do they have an effect on the growing brain? And are they critical proteins, right? So let's look at them. They found that the identified proteins were collapse and response mediator proteins one and two, otherwise known as CRMP1 and CRMP2, guanine deaminase, GDA, lactate dehydrogenase, A and B, and then stress-induced phosphoprotein one, STIP1, neuron-specific enolase, NSE, and Y-box binding protein one, otherwise known as Y-box. Let's take CRMP as an example. Is CRMP involved in something important that might lead to an autism phenotype? And the answer is CRMP is involved in neuronal network formation. Antibodies against CRMP then therefore could be dysfunctionally affecting neuronal network formation, leading to problems in neuronal information trafficking. Wow, that sounds like it could be related to autism. So that leads us to a possibility. And in their work, they found that 20% of autistic children had antibodies against these parts of the brain. So maybe one in five children with autism is an autoimmune phenomenon. Again, not causation yet, but possible correlation. So in order to study the whole process, we really need to know how does the brain develop? Once mom and dad get together and sperm meets egg and you have the whole story beginning, where does the process go? How does the brain develop? Well, we know right out of the gate The first things that happen in the first few weeks of life is that the neural tube, which is the essentially the the structure of cells that become the spinal cord all the way up to the entire brain, starts to close. And then everything starts to grow from there into what we see of as the mature brain. 
there's a proliferation of neurons that occurs roughly around four weeks of age. The neuronal migration that we're speaking to there starts at six weeks of age. And then differentiation and growth of axons and dendrites, which is the lengthening of those uh, neuronal transmission pathways, production of synapses and the neurotransmitters, all that's occurring between the fourth week and all the way up to almost the end of pregnancy. Development of intracellular signaling pathway starts at around week six. And you start to see all this stuff happening in the neuronal pathway migration. But then there's also the development of glial cells, the immune system. That begins in the third trimester. The development of the hippocampus and memory centers. The increase in myelination. So that's the, the part of the axon, which is the long period of the neuron in between the actual neuronal body and the synaptic other end. This long axon has to be myelinated, which gives it an insulation to allow the transmission of the electrical impulse to occur. And then once a child's born, you have the growth of the brain, you have uh, rapid prefrontal cortex development, then you have axonal and synaptic pruning. So there's all of this development that must occur. What's involved in the developmental process? What do you need to develop naturally? Well, then we have to go and say, okay, what are the constructs of a brain? What are the upstream macro and micronutrients or cofactors as I call them? Bonnie Kaplan, in her book, The Better Brain, writes a lot about this, and, and she uses the word cofactor, which I like, and so I'm going to also use and copy from her. The brain needs cofactors, vitamins, and minerals primarily. It also needs the macronutrients of amino acids, lipids, and carbohydrates. But right at the center of all that is the intestinal microbiome, and frankly, microbiomes around the body. How are they involved in this? We need lipids. There's two different major types. There's the long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids of the omega-6 and omega-3 type primarily. And then there's the polar lipids like sphingomyelin and different things. So these lipids are there to make cell membranes functional, to be a part of the myelin sheath, to be a part of so many pieces of the growing brain. And if they're not there, you could have issues with cognitive function, executive function, visual processing, attention, impulse control, cognitive function, memory, neuronal plasticity. These are all things that could be related to autism. You need amino acids for developing all the neurotransmitters, right? Very important. If you don't have those, you have issues, right? Then you have vitamins. What are they involved in? Vitamin A is involved in memory formation, cognitive function, vitamin B12 and folate are involved in all kinds of things, including including closure of the neural tube, which is a big process. Cell division, myelination, synaptogenesis, neurotransmitter synthesis, hippocampal development, right? What about minerals? Iron, critically important in so many different pathways, including myelination, the development of dopamine and other neurotransmitters, the development of the hippocampus for memory, and then zinc for brain growth, neurotransmission, uh, enzymatic activity, neurogenesis and migration, synaptogenesis. So you can see here, that this pattern of needing macro and micronutrients is critically important. So is there a possibility, and I'm raising this now, as maybe this is one of the breakpoints in the developing process of the human brain. Has the Americanized diet, our chemical exposure, and many other what I call exposome events put a challenge on the developing mind of the child so that we're seeing more dysfunction, more neurodiversity that is not in keeping with what is optimal for a child to function in modern America? And at the, begin, at the center of this all, again, is the microbiome. How is our dysfunctional microbiome playing out? How is the lack of the diverse rainforest of our bacteria in our gut affecting this trajectory? And then what are the other external events that could be dysregulating this process? Are there environmental stressors like toxins 
and chemicals in the environment that are a piece of a dysfunctional pathway leading to enzymatic damage or actual just neuronal damage. And there's discussion points to be had in that realm. And then we think about it from a timing perspective. What part of the cycle of childhood growth is being affected? Is the developing brain particularly vulnerable in the early life stage, the first trimester, the second trimester, the third trimester? Where is the nutrient deficiency more important? And then do we know about this from an epigenetic perspective? We'll get into that a little bit in a, in, in a few minutes. And is it an antecedent? So is it the precursor or is it actually a trigger of the event going on inside the body at this moment? And we can think about this from a perspective, again, of iron. We know that iron's critical in the first trimester and, and second, third trimester. It's also important, but then also after the child's born. Low iron is involved in lack of neural development. And then now we have this world where the timing could be affected by all of the poverty strike struggles of the United States, social determinants of need that the government is now putting a lot of effort in, which I am applauding 100%. We need to be helping everybody in society to meet their needs as any way we can, whether it's through providing healthy food, through providing uh, supplements needed to help uh, have a, a, stru a, a structured home life that is safe and, and not emotionally challenging. There's so many layers of this that we need to look at. And then we think of cofactors again. Is there a reality here that the dysfunction we're seeing in the child is because those cofactors are not being put into place in an appropriate volume, not just the timing, but the volume at the time that leads to enzymatic stalling? So you think about a four-cylinder engine in a car that should be an eight-cylinder engine, but four cylinders aren't working, right? For some reason, right? And I, I think of that in the world of genomics. So maybe the enzymes aren't working appropriately in the system because there's not enough cofactors or substrate upstream of it to help the enzyme do its job and lead to the product that we want. There's a lot of factors here involved in this. And, and these micronutrients, the vi vitamins and minerals are, are key here. So, do we know this and the volume needed? And do we know the single nucleotide polymorphisms, as they're called, or SNPs, that are related to each person's genetics? Do, does somebody have a deficiency of the ability to produce adequate uh, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase activity, the enzyme, MTHFR, that's talked a lot about? Is there a SNP there where the C677T variant is heterozygous, which means one copy's there and one copy's not. And if you don't have enough methylated B vitamins on board, you may have some weakness there. And what is that playing out as? Interesting questions. And then we think of everything in the context of what is the governmental understanding of micronutrients in food, and we call it the RDA. And registered dietary allowance is a metric that we use to prevent deficiency states. You know, so if you don't have enough of your vitamin C on board, you will develop scurvy. So we meet the metric to make sure somebody doesn't end up with scurvy. But is that optimal? Is that the amount of vitamin C you need for immune function or antioxidant status? And I submit to you the answer is no. Really complicated. If you look at a slide of the biochemical pathways that are involved in brain activity and metabolism to have the energy to run the brain, which chews up about 30% of the calories, the macronutrients we take in, it's an exceedingly complicated process with tons of cofactors as vitamins and minerals and tons of macronutrients needed to achieve the goal that we're looking for. 
And when we look at the nutrients again from a macro and micronutrient perspective, micronutrients will just slow development in general. They will make neural pathways, neuronal metabolism and the function therein and the myelination and the trafficking slow down to be less optimal. A true macronutrient deficiency where you actually don't have enough food on board, and that's well known in, in areas where there is abject food poverty, there will be a decrease in brain volume, brain cell number, synaptic number, and neurotransmitter activity. But I don't think that's an issue in the United States as, as macronutrient deficiency is not a problem. We have calories. We just don't have effective calories and effective use of them in the sense of the types that we're eating associated with the cofactors coming in. And I'll, I'll, I'll break out that nuance a little bit in a second. Let us look at iron as the prototypical cofactor of micronutrient in the process of humans needing to get the cofactors to the places of importance in the growing brain, in this case, again, in the status of mom being pregnant. In order to get enough iron into the system, the first thing you need to do clearly is to take it in. What does that entail? Well, clearly that means eating it or drinking it. And historically for millennia, humans had to get it through consumption of meat and or green leafy vegetables or other sources of iron that exist in the world. And then once it's in the body, it has to be absorbed. So clearly it needs to travel down through the GI tract into the intestines where it is absorbed in the small intestine primarily. And then you say, okay, well, once it's absorbed, what does it have to, what has to occur then? Well, it has to be transferred systemically via the bloodstream and then be received at a cell, taken up by the receptor, brought into the cell, and then utilized as, ne as necessary with an enzyme and potentially another cofactor involved. And all along this pathway, you could have dysfunction, whether it's genomic by a single nucleotide polymorphism or inflam inflammation-based or some other process that makes it such that you can't get the iron to the cell that's needed in the adequate volume necessary to allow the upstream neurological pathways to develop, as we discussed earlier on. And it's involved in lots of different pathways. And then you say, okay, well, what about the history of iron, right? So iron, interesting enough, is utilized by microbes like bacteria and viruses. They love iron and they take iron in their own process of cell replication and, and function. So the human body ingeniously knows that when it's sick or dealing with infection or some form of inflammatory response, it will hide the iron in something called a ferritin cage. And so we measure ferritin levels in the blood to see if a child is iron deficient, because if the ferritin is very low, that's the stage of knowledge that they're not storing any. So that means they need extra. So that's been involved now in neurologic function, especially in the older children related to restless leg syndrome and, and sleep parasomnias. But what's interesting in the human body is to think about that, you know, those ferritin cages are storing it. So what happens if you're in an inflamed state or infected? Your body's going to try and hide the iron from the viruses and bacteria. And so maybe there's not enough iron in the body of mom if she's inflamed or infected for neurologic function. Lots to think about here. But the pathways of understanding the need for macronutrients can be sent sideways by all kinds of different factors. Frankly, at times it's surprising that anybody turns out normal with all the possibilities of dysfunction that can occur. Again, intake absorption, transfer systemically, receptor binding and utilization, and then enzymatic use. Lots of places this can go wrong. And if we go back again and think about all the things needed per structure. So let's just take it the neuron, for example. It needs protein, carbohydrates, iron, copper, zinc, 
long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, iodine, vitamin A, vitamin B6, vitamin D, and vitamin C. And if any of those are suboptimal, there's a possibility that function and or production will be sent sideways. What about the oligodendrocyte, the cell that actually makes the myelin that coats the axon to help send signals? You need protein, carbohydrates, iron, iodine, selenium, zinc, vitamin B6, and vitamin B12. And it goes on and on. The astrocyte, the neuronal oligodendrocyte, you know, all the different parts of the system need to be fed appropriately in order for appropriate action to occur. So let's go back now and look at some of those specific cases that we discussed early on. What about immunometabolism shifts that occur in mom that could lead to maternal immune activation and or infectious related dysfunction? In order to understand that, we sort of need to know, okay, what does it look like in a pregnancy state from an immune perspective? And we know now that the data is that the adaptive immune system and part of the innate immune system will change. So mom, in order to prevent the baby from being taken out, because the baby is an amalgam of mom and dad's genes, 50% of each, if mom stays in a what's called Th1 polarized state, that is more likely to abort the child because it is a cell-destroying or viral bacterial-destroying type polarity. So mom's body shifts. It changes to more Treg cells and Breg cells, which are the regulatory cells that are involved in tolerance. And it also shifts towards Th2, which is more parasite fighting, but also is more prone to not attacking viruses and bacteria or cells. The T cells that are involved in that viral fighting cells, they go down. Th1 responses decrease. Natural killer cells activity subsets will decrease. And, and the B cells won't produce as many antibodies. And again, these are all processes that take place in order to prevent the child from being aborted. Well, could something be affecting that polarity that leads to problems inside mom and the child? Could there be something upstream now that's making that natural event not be natural anymore from an immune perspective? And in an article in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences, Dr. Zawadzka, Z-A-W-A-D-S-K-A, had a article published called The Role of Maternal Immune Activation, the Pathogenesis of Autism, a review of the evidence, proposed mechanisms, and implications for treatment. And what she noted in her work was that infection-induced maternal immune activation syndrome noted that cytokines, or these cell signaling molecules that are released by the immune system, were elevated in these cases of children who ended up with autism. They had elevated levels of TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, which then drove activation of Th17 cells, which drive the production of interleukin-17A, which is very pro-inflammatory. This all heads into the placenta, which then leads via the bloodstream to the child, which activates immune resident cells inside the child. So you have tons of IL-17A, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and other cytokines floating around in the bloodstream of the baby that's being produced. And oh, by the way, when it gets into the brain, that leads to microglial immune activation, which are the macrophages of the brain, oxidative stress, which if you think about oxidation as rusting, sort of rusting from the inside out, and mitochondrial dysfunction. And mitochondria are the powerhouse of every single cell. And if they don't work well, the cell doesn't work well. All of this leads to neural inflammation, which is the hallmark of autism, and we end up with autism spectrum disorder. So then you ask yourself the question, what leads to maternal immune activation from a upstream risk? Well, one of the players in this that Dr. Zavadska noted was gestational diabetes. 
And when you looked at the normal immune response in human mothers, they have elevated numbers of natural killer cells in count, but not aggressive types. They polarize, as stated, to Treg and Th2 type cells, and they decrease their B cell volume. And basically, they get into what's called a permissive, tolerant immune state. But in a gestational diabetic parent or mother, there is activation and overactivation of neutrophils, which are very powerful uh, resident white blood cells that kill with neutrophil extracellular traps and all kinds of different mechanisms to kill pathogens primarily. We have activation of monocytes, Th1 and Th17, the helper cells, become very aggressive towards killing pathogens. We see the elevation of CD8 cytotoxic T cells, and also we see the activation of B cells, which again are the autoimmune part of the adaptive system. And this all comes in concert with macrophage infiltration, macrophage activation, and also insulin resistance. So what are the upstream causes of gestational diabetes? Well, we know this primarily. Dietary is the biggest piece. Lots of flour and sugar and bad fats and sedentary behavior and obesogen chemicals that we're exposed to. All of this drives potential dysfunction. And so we have to say if we have a correlation here between gestational diabetes and maternal immune activation, well, that may be one piece of the pie leading to other problems of neuronal damage inside the growing baby. And, you know, when you think about it from an obstetrical perspective now, we have the world of obstetrics looking at oral glucose tolerance tests, which is where you drink a certain amount of sugar and you watch the blood sugar response. And if it's abnormal, that would be considered gestational diabetes. Well, typically it's a one hour, two hour. Now, if you fail the one hour, fail the two hour, but pass the three hour, there's people saying that's okay. And it makes no sense to me. If you fail any of them, it should be a warning sign that these are risk factors for abnormal downstream problems to the child. And what happens in the child if you have diabetes is that the blood sugar levels rise in mom's bloodstream, which then gets in via the placenta to the child. The blood sugar is being elevated, causes the pancreas of the baby to secrete more insulin, and that helps control the volume of blood sugar in the body of the baby. But oh, by the way, insulin is a massive growth hormone. And so the child grows bigger, which leads to large gestational age children and other problems of, they have higher risk of problems of the heart, higher risk of problems of the GI tract. These are genetic malformations. And these are all perinatal events that can go sideways that, oh, by the way, happen to have an association with increased risk of autism. So we have to be very careful about the understanding around the risks of gestational diabetes and just macronutrient food intake in general for mom for the potential risk of baby. And again, this, this discussion is heavily sl slanted towards mom because that's what most of the data in this case that I'm looking at is leading towards. That doesn't say any way, shape, or form that fathers are not important and what fathers do to their bodies epigenetically and from the exposome perspective, not important. From the, but from the purpose of this discussion and this podcast today, we're not going to go down that road. I'll save that for another time. So if we look at the work of Rick Johnson, who is a preeminent researcher at University of Colorado. He's a kidney specialist. He's done a lot of work with uric acid and fructose. He wrote a great book that I absolutely love called Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. He actually is a podcast guest, I think podcast number 14, if you're interested in listening, one of my favorites. He's looking now at fructose and its effect on maternal child dyads, specifically with as it relates to preeclampsia. 
And he's found in a paper published in Hypertension Research, uh, Dr. Nakagawa, N-A-K-A-G-A-W-A, is the, is the lead author in 2023. And the article's entitled, Fructose Might Be a Clue to the Origin of Preeclampsia Insights from Nature and Evolution. For me, I love that word evolution because, again, these effects that are happening in the human body are not mistakes. They're only becoming problematical because of our choices, not the genetics, not the historical millennial reasons as to why we have these genes. But let's just say this. When you consume a large amount of fructose in the body, there is an increased risk of anxiety and inflammation. We know this from many studies, but in life sciences, Dr. Bukhari, B-U-K-H-A-R-I, had an article called Maternal High Fructose Diet and Neonatal Immune Challenge Alter Offspring Anxiety-Like Behavior and Inflammation Across a Lifespan. But in Dr. Johnson's work, looking specifically at the placenta, it's quite amazing that the placenta is somewhat of a hypoxic or low oxygen environment up until about 12 weeks. And that actually allows for the normal development of the placenta using fructose as the major metabolic piece because fructose is the primary fuel source in a low oxygen environment. Whereas in a high oxygen environment, you'd preferentially use the TCA cycle or Krebs cycle for developing your ATP with oxygen. And in this case, you know, you use fructose. But in Dr. Johnson's work, he noted that if you have high levels of fructose in the system, there is a feedback loop that occurs in the process of developing uric acid. So in fructose metabolism, if there's excess sugar on board in the system, fructose can be metabolized all the way down to uric acid via adenosine deaminase. That uric acid actually is known now to cause multiple factors to occur in the body. One is it causes the body to become relatively insulin resistant. It causes the body to store uh, sugar as fat in the periphery and actually in the liver. It raises blood pressure through vasopressin and basically makes a human like a metabolic syndrome style. But this was very advantageous when it was unknown whether a human was going to have food the next day because that period of time where you were in this metabolic storage state, when you fasted in the future, those food stores would become your survival mechanism. So this was a great idea for millennia. But oh, by the way, now when we have tons and tons of fructose on board and tons and tons of exposure to food, this now becomes a net negative. And there's a feedback loop where this excess fructose looks like it drives pathways that lead to excess of uric acid secretion, excess vasopressin, and all the patterns that we see in preeclampsia, which is a major risk factor for autism. The, the children who are involved in high fructose patterning in the translational style, at least in the animal model, there's a hyperglycemic event, a metabolic syndrome event, an intrauterine growth retardant event, as well as the preeclampsia. So if we take this data on its surface, again, looks like there's a period here of possible causation where excess fructose ingestion might be driving and probably is driving the reality that we see of as a preeclamptic state and potentially autism spectrum disorder. So I submit again now, looking at the data, that I would say we need to start looking at our consumption of macronutrients as sugars, fructose, all of this stuff in concert need to be a, a principal piece of a plan to avoid risk factors for developing neurodevelopmental delays and neurodiversity. Because when you look at the upstream mechanisms, it looks like this is plausible. And we're going to talk about a project that's been 
in the works that looks at this in a, in a little bit. But right now I want to switch gears a little bit to breast milk. What about gestational diabetes from the perspective of breast milk? You know, if you think about the best food on the planet for a human baby, by and large, is breast milk. It has all the nutrients needed for a child to survive. The podcast I did with EA Quinn back a year and a half ago was fascinating that no matter what the macronutrients mom consumes in agrarian old school diets, whether it's beans and rice and some vegetables to meat and, and, and beans and, and rice, you know, so who knows what the differential inputs are. The outputs almost always end up roughly the same as far as how well the breast milk comes out. So the system was set up to be redundant and functional, but in a gestational diabetes state, an article by Desena Avalar, D-E-S-E-N-A-A-V-A-L-L-A-R in Frontiers of Immunology, one of my favorite journals, entitled Gestational Diabetes Metalist Changes Human Colostrum Immune Composition. And when they looked at the composition of the breast milk of the baby in a gestational diabetic state, the mothers that were diabetic had higher secretion of cytokines and chemokines, these cell signaling molecules in the colostrum of the breast milk of, of these of the mothers that had excess levels of interferon gamma, IL-6, IL-15, all of these precursor cytokines that lead to inflammation. So not only are we talking prenatally, but what about postnatally? Then maybe these metabolic problems of the human health are actually then becoming more dysfunctional to the child as well, maybe compounding the problems. What if we shift gears to the microbiome? And most folks who listen to this podcast or read the newsletter know that I love the microbiome data. It's still in the works, long way to go. But there's a lot of smoke here and fire of what's going on in the human body when it comes to inflammation. So when you look at maternal immune activation, we know that dysbiosis is related to it. And we know that there is a lot of upstream reasoning as to the why. Diet, drug use, whether it's illicit drug use or pharmaceutical drug use. Uh, human stress, all these things can affect the microbiome negatively. And in an article in Nature by Kim et al., Maternal Gut Bacteria Promote Neurodevelopmental Abnormalities in Mouse Offspring was the title. And it turns out that maternal immune activation can be driven by abnormal microbiomes. So again, we keep seeing this loop back to the cause of autism, which is an infection from SARS-2 or influenza or one of those other viruses while mom is pregnant, could be triggered and probably is triggered by upstream reasonings, whether it's diabetes, dysbiosis, or other choices of lifestyle problem in human culture of modern America leading to these problems. What about toxins? What about exposure to other environmental, exposome, I call them, triggers? Well, we know that chemicals for sure lead to damage to the cells of the human body. And we know that viruses and bacteria and different pathogens lead to, and they trigger pathogen associated molecular patterns, which leads to inflammation, which could trigger damage associated molecular patterns or part of the innate immune system that leads to local inflammation and activation of the immune system again, which then can lead to potentially macrophages or dendritic cells taking parts of our own body and presenting it to the immune system, which could lead to autoimmunity. And so it's really important that we know what prevents autoimmunity in humans? Tolerance is a big piece here. And going back to Ramirez-Celis' work, we need to understand the upstream causes of autism so we can, I mean, uh, autoimmunity, excuse me, so we can prevent the development of autism in cases where that's a possibility where maternal autoantibodies like, you know, 
we talked about there with lactate dehydrogenase A and B. If they're autoantibodies against those enzymes, are we seeing problems from that? So we want to understand why are people developing more autoimmunity? And that really comes down to, again, many lifestyle factors. Obesity and diabetes are heavily associated with increased risk of autoimmunity. And we know that if you have both obesity and diabetes while pregnant, your risk of developing a child with autism is four times higher, 4X, so a big risk. So what are the things that cause autoimmunity or autoimmune flare activation if you are autoimmune? Well, we know dysglycemia, so diabetes or anywhere where you're having spikes of blood sugars. We know that food reactions, things like celiac disease or casein milk protein intolerance can drive inflammation. We know there are people who have genomic single nucleotide polymorphisms for ability to detoxify chemicals in the environment, putting them at higher risk for baseline chemicals, or you really get exposed to a lot of chemicals that are bad for you. We know that hormones can play a role, hypoxia or low oxygen states, poor sleep, anything that causes a lot of stress. These are all precursor risk factors for worsening or possibly the development of autoimmunity. And in an excellent article called Dietary Fibers and Bacterial Short-Chain Fatty Acid Enhance Oral Tolerance and Protect Against Food, Allergy Through Diverse Cellular Pathways, in the journal Cell Reports by Tan et al., 2016, we see that, well, what helps the immune system stay tolerant? What do you need? Well, you need good microbiome, good microbes. Well, what's the upstream trigger of that? Well, we know fiber, good food predominantly, but also the avoidance of drugs and chemicals that can make the microbiome less functional, specifically antibiotics and antacids. But we also need adequate vitamin D and vitamin A. This helps to produce adequate tolerant T cells like Treg cells and secretory IgA in the mucosal lining of the gut to help prevent problems in inflammation. So tolerance and immunity is key. And you look at the work by Stein et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at two groups of of genomically similar humans, the Amish and the Hutterites that live in the United States in enclaves that are predominantly farming-based communities. But the Amish tend to live on single-family farms, i.e. the The whole family lives on the exact farm that they work on, so they're exposed to animals in high frequency, as opposed to the Hutterites, which had more of a mechanized system where the homes were all in the periphery and the uh, farm workers went into the farm, so the children had less exposure. And they knew this by measuring bacterial endotoxin, which is the bacterial cell wall debris in the dust of the homes. And they found the Hutterite homes had very little, and the Amish homes had very large amounts. And then when they looked at the children, they had very little atopic disease or asthma allergies, immunology-based problems in the Amish, but much higher in the Hutterite. And then they took a mouse model that was prone to asthma and gave them exposures of dust right after birth and found that the animals that were exposed to the dust of the Amish homes had almost no development of asthma, whereas the ones exposed to Hutterite dust had higher developments of asthma. So this, again, gets to the point of what is our tolerance mechanisms once we're born? Are we being exposed appropriately to things, microbes that are naturally in our environment that lead to development of normal immune activity, normal immune function? I shudder to think of the effects that occurred over the COVID period, where we sanitized everything. We stayed away from each other. We locked ourselves in homes. Those children born in those two years, are we going to see a massive spike in autoimmunity, in auto uh, inflammation, or in allergic type diseases? We're going to see this, I think. Don't know, but we're going to find out. Hopefully, we're going to see the tracking of this data over time. What about Randy Jertle's work? Podcast number two, one of the seminal papers in the history of science in the last two to three decades. Dr. Jertle, a phenomenal researcher, 
basically figured out something that we were taught in medical school when I was at Emory that DNA had two parts, exons and introns. The introns were considered junk DNA because they had no function that we knew of. And the exons were the protein coding regions that when their book of life was read, that's what made the proteins that we needed to function. Well, Dr. Drudel's group at Duke said, hmm, well, let's see if we look at this from a different perspective. And his postdoctoral fellow, Robert Waterland, was a nutritionist by his undergrad training and training. He said, let's give food to the pregnant mice, which are called agouti mice, which if you do nothing to mom and dad but put them together, they make a yellow, coat color, obese, diabetic, and prone to cancer mouse model. And so they said, okay, what if we give the pregnant dams some foods that are specifically choline, folic acid, betaine, and vitamin B12, which are known don donors of methylation groups or methyl groups. And a methyl group from a biochemistry perspective is a carbon atom with three hydrogens. And what it does, it puts a sticky note on the DNA. So we learned. And what happened when they gave these pregnant dams, these food supplements, again, these are cofactors, like we talked about earlier, the mice came out skinny, brown, non-prone to cancer, and not prone to diabetes. And this was the first time in human history that everything shifted in the understanding of genetics. You know, I think roughly 21,700 genes in a Drosophila fly, if I remember correctly, humans have just 24,000. How is that possible? Well, the epigenome is the reasoning to the why. So super, super fascinating that you can alter the transcription and the function of a gene without changing the actual DNA code. I think of this sort of like a computer, like Dr. Jertle had spoken to, that the hard drive of the computer doesn't do anything until the software goes in and says, this is how the computer is going to function or not. The software is the epigenome, everything that's outside of our body that tells us what to do, whether it's food, chemical exposure, or stressors. And then the DNA is the hard drive of the computer that it's just there to be read or not read based on the exposome. So, I hope you're getting that picture of, wow, we have a lot more control over our destiny, our DNA, than we ever thought. I highly encourage you to listen to the podcast with Dr. Jertle from a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, because there's so much information there that has value for everyone to understand from a, we have more control of our lives than we think. So if we understand epigenetics being an exposome event, where can it go wrong? Well, boy, it can go wrong everywhere. Oxidative stress from chemicals, extra excessive exercising, uh, stress, whatever, right? Maternal nutrition. Clearly, maternal nutrition can be positive, but it also can be negative. What about maternal metabolism? We know that now with all the gestational diabetes data and the fructose data of Dr. Rick Johnson. Placental dysfunction for many different reasons can occur. Hypoxia, potentially. Fructose, we know now, a bunch of others. What about severe infections like the maternal immune activation syndrome, right? What about toxic exposure? We haven't gotten into toxins and there's a lot more going on here. Well, what about the epigenetic perspective of toxins? If you think about Dr. Jodl's work again, his second postdoctoral fellow, Dr. Dana Dolanoy said, hmm, what if we put toxins into this mix? And she was a toxicologist by training and so she came from a different perspective of Dr. Waterland, which I always find beautiful, right? Getting people from different views of the spectrum bring different ideas, which gets us better answers. And so her group then said, okay, with Dr. Jertle, let's look at giving the same agouti mice, the methyl donors, but also now in a, add in BPA, which is a plasticizer. And that BPA is a 
chemical that is known to hypomethylate. So it does the exact opposite of what the healthy foods does. And lo and behold, the mice came out again, yellow, prone to diabetes and cancer and obese. So now for the first time in human history, we have data from this exceptional research team that there is a push-pull in the environment. There could be benefit from a pregnancy state where you give the right inputs, the cofactors that produce a healthier child by silencing the agouti gene that promotes disease, or you put in the chemicals that then say, hey, let's reverse that. And you put in more chemicals than you put in the good foods and you could actually supersede the benefit of the good food and have a net negative response with a mouse that comes out sick. So this is super fascinating. And I, I really want to hammer this point home. Because if we understand the data from a growing brain perspective, maybe we're not having enough cofactors, not enough of the right micronutrients, but oh boy, are we getting plenty of the toxins either through the air or through our food or through our water or wherever. And this is a scary proposition. And so to me, when I think about all this in concert again, and we're going to keep going, but man, there's a lot of places and variables where autism spectrum disorders and other neurodiversity and neurodevelopmental problems could be coming from. And the timing of it could matter tremendously. If the timing is in the first trimester, that's probably a lot more dangerous, especially based on what the data says, than later on. And then we look at the environmental working group's work, Dr. I mean, uh, Ken Cook's group. Ken is the president of the environmental working group. He is podcast number three, another phenomenal man who's done some amazing work trying to protect us in an environment where the environmental protection agency doesn't seem to be keen on controlling the number of chemicals we're exposed to. And Ken Cook's group is saying, you know what, we need to be as a check against this governmental reality. And his groups looked out there and found a lot of stuff that's really sort of disturbing. They did a study of 10 American children at birth, looking at their cord blood and found that they had chemical volumes in their bloodstream high enough to potentially cause disease risk. That's a big deal. And how much are we bathing in on a day-to-day basis in our modern society? And then there was a recent publication, Prenatal Exposure to Air Pollution, Environmental Health by Morgan et al. in 2023. And they found that neurodevelopmental risk at two years of age was doubled if there was a significant prenatal exposure of particulate matter 2.5 micron in size, which tends to be air pollution from cars and different things. So there is a possibility of stuff we can't even control to some extent. And then there was another article this year called Micro and Nanoplastics Breach the Blood-Brain Barrier in the Biomolecular Corona's Role Revealed in Nanomaterials by Copats et al. So now we're finding there's microplastics in the placenta in the brain. If it crosses the blood-brain barrier, holy cow, folks, this is not a good thing, right? Microplastics are likely to be getting into places that activate the immune system in a negative way. It's not supposed to be there. The immune system will not like it. And if that causes inflammation, these are downstream risks. What about the ubiquitous use of pesticides, right? Frontiers in microbiology, gamma, GAMA et al. looked at chronic effects of dietary pesticides on the gut microbiome and neural development. There we go again with the gut microbiome. It's at the center. Glyphosate, which is Roundup, 2,4-D, chlorpyrifose. They get into our water, our soil, and our food via the modern agricultural system. So that means it can get into breast milk, right? Post-birth, it could be getting into the child there. But what about if mom's eating it? Maybe that's causing more dysbiosis in mom. Maybe it could be leading to more inflammation in mom. Maybe leading to more potential for immune activation with an infection or something. I mean, there's so many possibilities here that 
we need to be looking again at all the possible ways to reduce these effects because boy, is it hard to prove causation in, in so many variables. So we got to say, okay, let's like Dale Bredesen's work with Alzheimer's. We got to take a 42 prong approach to this, knowing that none of these decisions we're asking for are bad for the human body to eat organic food that doesn't have glyphosate in it is a no brainer to not expose yourself to chemicals where you can is a no brainer. I mean, who's going to argue against that? And in the maternal diet, we want to make sure that mom's getting those methyl donors like the goody mouse got. So what is that? Vitamin B9, vitamin B12, betaine, choline, and high volumes. Where do we get this from? Dark leafy greens, whole grains, poultry, pork, shellfish, liver. Liver is an amazing food for a lot of these things, right? Vitamin B12, we get that from eggs, meat, poultry, shellfish. What about betaine? We get that from, you know, wheat bran, wheat germ, spinach, canned beets, raw beets. What about choline? Well, choline comes in high volume from eggs, salmon, chicken, stuff of that nature. So we want to be making... uh, very sure as obstetricians and pediatricians that we're talking to moms about what foods they really want to be eating in concert with their pregnancy state. So again, if we stick to the microbiome, if mom isn't eating healthily, then maybe her microbiome is not replete with all of the good bugs that are necessary. Maybe that microbiome is actually a rainforest that's been culled. Most of the trees are chopped down. The diversity is not there. And we know biodiversity of the rainforest of the human microbiome is highly associated with inflammation and disease. I mean, this is well studied. Martin Blazer wrote a, a article called The Theory of Disappearing Microbiota in the Epidemics of Chronic Diseases in Nature Reviews Immunology in 2017, where he goes through all of his data that the depleted microbiome of the human is prone to being altered when it comes to adaptive and innate immunity with decreased tolerance and increased reactivity to the world, which means you have an increased risk of autoimmunity and inflammatory diseases and and autism and allergies. So I think of that again in the context of all that we've discussed, Ramirez Celis's work, right? That's, that's big, right? And so what about the immune activation work of Edlo? I mean, all of this stuff is becoming circular. So if the microbiome is unhealthy because we don't eat enough fiber, we don't eat enough normal foods, we take too many antibiotics, we're exposed to too many antacids and la, 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 la. Well, boy, downstream immunologic risk is not good. Tolerance is broken. And if mom's microbiome is not effective, that's the likely microbiome the baby's going to get, especially if they deliver vaginally. That's their service organ of the microbiome. Then there was an amazing discussion I had with Tracy Shafazada about a product called Bifidobacterium infantis, EVC001, which is a novel probiotic that Bethany Henrik and her group published in the journal Cell. Bifidobacteria mediated, excuse me, immune system imprinting early in life, 2021, where they looked at what this specific bacteria does. Well, oh, by the way, it turns out it has all 19 genes to produce the enzymes that help break down human milk oligosaccharides. Well, what is a human milk oligosaccharide? Well, that is the sugar that mom's breast milk makes in order to feed the microbiome of the baby. Roughly 10 to 15% of the human milk is actually this human milk oligosaccharide. There's 220 plus different varieties of them. And they have an amazing function in helping the human body grow intolerance. Their work looked specifically at immune inflammatory markers, and they found that in breastfed infants given 
bacterium Infantis EVC001 that all of those HMO utilized genes turns on, turned on and intestinal T helper cell function and TH17 cytokines were placed in a normal tolerant state and gamma interferon beta was induced, which turns out to be beneficial. And then they also had downregulation of all kinds of pathways involved in inflammation, especially a, a test called a fecal calprotectin. So this was probably the best study I'd ever seen in a probiotic. And one of the reasons I love this probiotic, I think we should be giving this to moms antenatally so that the bacteria is actually in the microbiome when the baby's delivered vaginally and gets exposed to the stool and the vaginal flora so that the child then ends up in the healthiest state they can, right? This is, to me, logic. It makes so much sense that we should be doing this. Formula, which is doing its best via these companies to mimic breast milk, it never will be the same. Breast milk is always going to be the primary choice. But if you have to use formula, know that there's only three of the 220 plus human milk oligosaccharides in formula. So you're not getting all the things you need for all the metabolites to be made that feeds the gut and feeds the brain of the child. This is another big piece of uh, a big area of study that needs to be looked at in the coming decades regarding human health. What about stress? When you think of mental stress, physical stress, the body does very well if it's acute, short-lived, and resolves. The body is known to, if you're running away from a bull, trying to survive the attack of a jaguar, historically, you're going to turn on all the mechanisms for fight or flight. You're going to want to run away. You're going to want to narrow your focus to be able to see exactly what you're either fighting or running away from. All the blood's going to go to your lungs and your, uh, and your heart and your muscles to run fast and get away. Your brain is going to focus only on survival and you're going to shut down digestion. You're going to shut down all the relaxing modes of life. Inflammation-wise, you actually decrease all the inflammatory cytokines during this period of time because there's no reason to be inflamed when you're running for your life. Again, it's supposed to be short-lived, so this makes no risk. It's mediated all by the hormone cortisol. What happens if you're stressed out? You're a child living in an adverse event home. You're a pregnant woman who's exposed to domestic violence or at a stressful job or something else that gives you chronic unremitting stress. Well, it turns out that you're going to have somewhat of a resistant pattern to the cholesterol hitting the receptor, I mean, excuse me, the cortisol hitting the receptor of the cell. And over time, this actually leads to the exact opposite from an inflammatory immune perspective. You actually increase the translation and transcription of a chemical called nuclear factor cap B, NFKB for short. And increased NFKB is a massive, massive upstream target of induced inflammation in the body. So could mental stress be a main player in inflammation leading to risks in children? I would submit to the answer is yes. Data, hard to find. What about sleep? We know sleep has huge effects on immune parameters. If you look at a, a study by Garbarino, G-A-R-B-A-R-I-N-O, the role of sleep deprivation in immune-related disease risk and outcomes in communications biology in 2021, we see that sleep deprivation promotes all the inflammatory cytokines, IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, which, oh, by the way, do you remember going back to the immune, maternal immune activation syndrome? 
that led to autism spectrum. So sleep deprivation could be a precursor risk factor for having a harder time dealing with infection. And we know the immune system needs every major micronutrient. You need A, B, C, D, E, all of them. Vitamins are necessary for different parts of the adaptive and innate immune system and the physical barriers. But you also need all the minerals. You need iron, you need zinc, you need selenium, you need copper, everything. So the cofactors are super important in every piece of the immunological pie of immune tolerance, immune solvency, and immune health. It's a big deal. So now that I've laid the framework for these possibilities, again, causation is hard to answer. I give you a lot of mechanistic understandings as to risk factors for the development of metabolism to go sideways and or immune system function, immunometabolism to go sideways, leading to risk factors for neurodiversity or neurodegenerative disorder in children. And again, if we go back to the predictive model that Dr. Engelhard and group did at Duke, we could predict this by one month of age and 50% of the kids. That says to me, we need to be looking antenatally again. So what about the work of Dr. Leslie Stone and her group? I think this is super fascinating. If we look at their Grow Baby project, they published a study, Leslie Stone and colleagues, in Global Advances in Health and Medicine called Customized Nutritional Enhancement for Pregnant Women Appears to Lower Incidence of Certain Common Maternal and Neonatal Complications. And what they did in this study, all groups received the standard perinatal management plus, additionally, the study group was analyzed for serum levels of zinc, carnitine, 25-hydroxy vitamin D, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme, and catechol O-methyltransferase polymorphisms of their enzymes in the first trimester prior to intervention, with subsequent second trimester and postpartum assessment of zinc, carnitine, and 25-hydroxy vitamin D after intervention. And what they did was they gave nutritional supplementation and education around diet and what they mothers should get from a perspective of L-methylfolate, magnesium, fatty acids, probiotics, and, and as well as zinc, carnitine, and 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And their data was quite incredible. When we look at their data set as it was published, this longitudinal study from 2011 to 2017, in the Grow Baby group, pregnancy-induced hypertension was 0.7%. United States statistics at that time was 7%. Gestational diabetes, grow baby, 0.2%. United States, 9.2%. Small for gestational age, small babies, 1.5% in grow baby, 7.9% in USA. Large for gestational age, or LGA, 3.3% for grow baby, 6.9% for USA. Preterm birth, 2% versus 11%. You get the picture. But then let's look at the F1 generation or the children. What did the children have? Well, when they looked at the data, uh, when it comes to autism, they found that they had a less than 1% risk of autism compared to 1.8% in the United States average. Less than 1% risk of atopic diseases, allergies, and asthma compared to 11%. And so you start to run this data and you say, woo, baby, there's something here. There's smoke where there could be a serious fire. And what are the upstream things that we're trying to fix? Are we putting medicine in that has side effects? Are we doing things that are downstream dangerous? The answer is no. They're on task right now with a new 
study where they're looking at now going a little deeper and looking actually at about 42 different single nucleotide polymorphism genes and targeting specifically nutrients, cofactors, and macronutrients in a population of Medicaid patients in Nevada. And their early data, which is still small, but their Nevada preterm birth rate was 11.2%, and now their preterm birth rate was 10x less, 1.5%. And they've understood now that the number needed to treat is 10 women in order to have one beneficial outcome at a savings of roughly $65,000 for preterm birth. So from a financial perspective, this is brilliant. Not alone the fact that this is huge from a perspective of avoiding disease downstream risk. So I recently interviewed Dr. Stone, and you're welcome to listen to that podcast as well, but I bring her data here because I think her data wraps up all that we're talking about when we think about the upstream targets of avoiding potential dysfunction of the growing brain of a child. And so what do we think about when we think about what's the to-do now? What do we need to do? Again, we don't have definitive 100% data of causation. We have very good data that really gives us an upstream idea of what the answer is. So if you're to ask me today, what would I do if I had a family member who was about to choose to get pregnant? I would do this. Number one, I would focus on immune health with consistent sleep, mental stress reduction, whole organic foods, and toxin avoidance primarily. Now, again, the organic foods, you can go to ewg.org and look at the Dirty Dozen to pick which foods to spend your bang for your buck on that have the most pesticides, which are especially usually going to be your leafy greens and your uh, berries and some of the other fruits like peaches. But you can go look that stuff up. I would encourage everyone to get daily sun exposure based on skin tone, right? You should want at least minimum of 30 day, thirty minutes a day. You don't want to burn. Burn is damaging. Burn causes cancer. But getting sun exposure, historically, we always did. This is Mother Nature's way of giving us vitamin D. So we want to encourage that. And I would tell all people who are planning to get pregnant to take a prenatal vitamin. I love Garden of Life or Mega Food. Those are really good quality ones with methylfolate as the major choice. So those would be the things I'd be saying this would be what I would like. Now, I always encourage everyone, talk to your primary care provider, your obstetrician. This is not advice that you can take without researching it yourself, but those are my choices, what I tell folks if they ask me professionally and they're my patient. Number two, treat all maternal diseases aggressively before choosing to have a child, especially if you have autoimmune disease. Get the inflammation under control. And again, seek out a physician who understands how to help you do that. Medication would not be my first choice unless you have to take medication. I would encourage you to fix everything through lifestyle factor change or supplements that can target helping the immune system get in shape. Drugs have a lot more side effects, especially if you're pregnant with children. I think acetaminophen, which is the generic name for Tylenol, has its role. But if you're talking about a possibility of a drug that has some data out there that it could be problematical, I would avoid it. You know, if you're not pregnant, acetaminophen, Tylenol can have its uses. But you got to be very careful in a pregnancy state to take any medicine. There's a possibility that anything could go sideways. Again, I won't demonize any drug ever. But in the pregnancy state, I would avoid drugs as, all, as much as I can just because there is untoward risk on a growing baby. Number three. During pregnancy, 
continue everything we just talked about, but also maybe think about looking at your own single nucleotide polymorphisms. You can get 23andMe, run it through some DNA scrubbers, get some understanding, find a doc who understands how to do that, and then maybe target supplements based on that, but at least take a prenatal vitamin while you're pregnant. Eat super healthy while you're pregnant. Number four, deliver vaginally when possible. Consider fecal swabbing, right? You, you, you want to really think about how is your microbiome getting seeded? If you have a C-section, you're not getting a good microbiome transfer from your mom. So you might want to consider fecal swabbing. And again, talk to your doctor about this, but there is a natural paradigm to this. If you deliver vaginally, you're going to get exposed to mom's vaginal flora and her rectal flora, most likely. Most mothers have some rectal um, stool come out during delivery. This is not an accident. This is the way you transfer the microbiome. If you have herpes or any other disease, some risk factor, HIV, then clearly that's a different story. And your OB will talk to you about all this stuff. Five, postnatally. Breastfeed if possible. Consider Bifidobacter infantis EVOCOO1, I think it was called again, as a probiotic. Continue everything we've talked about before as you progress through. Infancy. Begin first foods at four months of age with vegetables right? Look for milk protein and all, look for milk protein intolerance and other inflammation issues. Milk protein intolerance is becoming a major problem in our, in our world, right? Kids, when I started, were one in a hundred or more of the children had no issues with cow milk proteins, soy milk proteins, any of that stuff. Now it's got to be close to one in four. It's so common in our office now that we have children who cannot tolerate cow's milk protein, the casein specifically. Many of them can't tolerate the soy milk protein. And now we're finding kids can't tolerate the corn syrup solids and formulas. And so we're having to shift all the way over to different subspecialty hydrolyzed formulas. It's a big problem. Tolerance has been broken in the immune system. Number eight, enjoy whole foods, organic diet, minimizing starches and promoting phytonutrients in children. I would encourage the target of supplemental micronutrients based on lab work in children, right? Especially if you have any issues with recurrent infections or anything strange, but I think it's a great idea to find out what your maximal needs are. But ideally you get this through food first. Encourage everyone to spend lots of time outside in nature as soon as possible after birth. Animal exposure is a net positive if you look at all the data. So let's go down those roads. Having a dog in the house seems to be a great idea. Living near a farm. You know, the Amish work is very clear. That Stein study in New England Journal of Medicine, very clear. Exposure is good. And then be attached to your child. Number 11, emotionally. If you're struggling in any way, shape, or form during pregnancy or postpartum, mom or dad, seek help, get therapy. Work on that which is not working for you mentally so that you can be attached to this beautiful creature that you've brought into the world. That to me is the biggest piece. You know, at our clinic now, we formed this new corporation called the Children First of North Carolina. It's a clinically integrated network where we're going to take funds from the state government of North Carolina to help kids get better care. Predominantly, all children have Medicaid. So they, in general, have higher social determinants of need or higher risks. So we are so excited to now do a bottom-up approach where we're trying to fix the problems where they start, trying to help children right from the get-go of their lives have better outcomes by helping them understand what it means to have a healthy diet, to be stress-free, to exercise, to all of the lifestyle factors that we've discussed 
throughout this entire podcast. How do we get these organic connections with children where they are? Well, the only way to do that is meet them in the office, potentially down the road, hopefully meet them at their house if we can do home visits. Ideally, we want to do this. And thankfully, the state of North Carolina is promoting this kind of a situation. And we are so excited to have 25,000 Medicaid children in our state, plus getting access to better care. It's the way medicine should be. It's the way we should all be looking towards the future for mothers and their children to have the best outcomes when it comes to human health. So for me, I think to sum it all up in a word, we have genes, but we have an epigenome and we have an exposome that give us opportunity to make decisions upstream of the target, to make better decisions for change that lead to immune tolerance, immune solvency, normal metabolism. And that all will lead to normal brain development that we all see as a normal child, not neurodiverse, not neurologically, developmentally delayed, but the best possible outcome they can have from their host genetics of mom and dad. And never will a podcast like this be disparaging of any child who has a neurodiversity problem or a neurodevelopmental delay. This is never that. Our goal as pediatricians is to love every kid wherever they're at. But that is not the same as to say that we shouldn't be looking upstream to prevent anything in a human child that is not optimal. Optimization is the key. We want children to be the best versions of themselves no matter what stage of their life they're at. And this podcast is all about the upstream targets of trying to develop the best of ourselves moving forward. And so for me, it's all about nutrition, adequate exercise, psychosocial support to decrease stressors, keep the environment clean, avoid chemical exposure, and on and on and on. I encourage everyone to pull some of those articles that I cited read the research, see where it's going. I am so excited to stay in touch with Dr. Leslie Stone and her team. And maybe God willing, fingers crossed, Grow Baby will come to North Carolina and we can start implementing these projects here and start to continue to tabulate data because data is the key. If we can prove over and over again that this is the route to immune solvency and immune and brain health, this should be a national program. As with always, hug those kids. Appreciate everybody listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, as always, I encourage you to rate me on Amazon. If they have rating, I don't think they do actually, but you can definitely rate me on the Apple podcast link. Send me a email through newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com. If you want to drop me some words, tell me a direction you want me to go. You don't like it at all. That's fine too. It's all good. I'm here for you. So as always, have a fabulous day, and that's all. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. The podcast does not constitute the development of any sort of provider-patient relationship. All the advice that is discussed is just my opinions. As nobody is listening to this, unless you are my patient, you must cross all of this information with your primary physician 
And this is just information for you to think about, but it must be cleared by your own provider of care. As always, have a great day.